Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Paleo Valley Essential C Complex. Just for a second, do a thought experiment with me. Once upon a time, we used to be limited by how much time we could spend on a boat, by whether or not we had access to vitamins like vitamin C, foods. And guess what? No scurvy. Can you imagine if we just wiped out scurvy where humans could have gone? Well, I think what you're trying to say is that human beings are the only mammals that don't actually make vitamin C on their own, so we have to get it from our diets. Yeah, and we know whole foods are always better. I think that we've distilled these things down into these micro-components, like how traditional vitamin C, like those horrific orange things that used to take, those are not doing it. That's not the whole vitamin C picture. No, I mean, most vitamin C supplements are nothing more than ascorbic acid mixed with some other stuff. And most of that is derived from GMO corn and highly processed in a lab. But Paleo Valley Essential C has concentrated sources of natural organic vitamin C, and it just packs a serious punch. We take it literally every day in our house. One of the things that I have come to perseverate upon, you know how I do this, I become a little obsessive. Yes, about you do. It's all about tissue quality, gut health. That starts with vitamin C, so you can actually use and build the collagen matrix. If you don't have vitamin C doesn't matter how much bone broth you're eating. If you want to get some Paleo Valley Essential C, go to thereadystate.com slash essential C, that's the letter C, and use the code readystate for 15% off. Mike Sinyard is the founder and CEO of Specialized Bicycle Components. Mike was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 1988. The Stump Jumper Mountain Bike was added to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History's collection in 1994. Mike's journey begins in the summer of 1973 when he sold his VW van for $1,500 and cycled around Europe. During his travels, he connected with Sinelli and Campagnolo, Italian bike component manufacturers, to establish an import business relationship. Today, Specialized is a leading manufacturer of bicycles and gear, made by riders for riders. In 2015, Mike launched the Specialized Foundation, known today as Outride, which focuses on linking cycling to improve cognitive, emotional, and social health. The foundation helps kids achieve academic, health, and social success. Outride currently supports community cycling, trail projects, and the Riding for Focus program. Mike Sinyard, welcome to the Ready State podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. It is great. Let me just start by saying it is great to see you back in Specialized Headquarters. It's I'm seeing masked workers and bike experts and builders and designers walk past you. How does it feel to be back in the shop? Well, yeah, to be back and to be with people after uh, this crazy year, you just realize when you meet people in person that everything is easy to solve, right? And it's just being present makes you appreciate it more than ever. I don't think people realize how incredible the specialized campus is and how many different sort of sub-projects are going on how many talented people are working on different aspects of the business or developing new concepts or new tech. So I've had the pleasure of being in Specialized many times when it's full party at Specialized, where you can just see the brilliance and the crazy bikes. And, and I've also been at Specialized when I was the only one in the building, basically. We're shooting in the retool <laughs> headquarters. Yeah. And it really is so strange to know that in the craziest bike bubble in the history of bike bubbles, no one was at Specialized. 
Yeah, it is for us too. And it's just the energy of the people here working, kind of like Santa's workshop, just seeing things be made because we make physical things, right? It's not like we're not like a tech company. We are a tech company, but not a tech <laughs> company that just makes things that are on the computer. We make physical things. And um, yeah, being back together and test writing things and, and talking about things is powerful. So Mike, I'd love to talk a little more about this crazy year a bit later, but I'd like to rewind all the way to the 70s if I could and have you just tell our audience a little bit of the specialized origin story. How did you start the company? What's the backstory? Oh, wow. Yeah. So in the 70s, I was going to school at San Jose State and I love bikes and I used to go to the flea market and get old bikes. And the things I like to do the most is like take them all apart and paint them and put them back together and sell them. I'd put like one ad in the newspaper, like, hey, a kind of a generic description of a bike for sale. But then I'd have a whole bunch of them. <laughs> so, um, but it was fun. And I learned a lot from that. And, you know, I would say like doing those things, it's very satisfying to do that. It was for me to work with your hands. And so that's kind of how the company started. And then in school, I was aviation major. I was terrible at that. So I changed to business. And then I thought, well, I don't want to go into like business and like work at IBM and wear a tie or something like that. So I thought, well, I don't care how little money I make because, you know, when you go to school, you learn to live on nothing. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, and I know that. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Right. So really from there, that's how I became interested in bikes. And then out of school, I just took a with some friends, we were like, the strategic plan was, let's go ride our bikes around Europe. <laughs> so we started in the Oktoberfest, and, and uh, that's how it did. I was rode around uh, Europe for three months. And then I met some of the manufacturers in Europe. And the money to start the company was, you always hear about uh, venture capital. I called it adventure capital. I sold the Volkswagen bus, and that's how I started. So you, just so everyone can hear this, <clears throat> when you go to Specialized, you can see... Mike's setup. And when he says he sold his bus, he sold his only car and had a bike and a trailer. And you rode around the Bay Area selling parts. Is that, is, am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah, it was kind of what I had to do, but I, it felt right, the right thing to do anyway. And um, yeah, so I sold the Volkswagen and that's how I started the company. It was just little by little and it was fun. So somehow, even though you're biking around the Bay Area with a trailer selling parts, you were able to grow the company massively. I want to say your revenue was up to something like 18 million in the first four years. Yeah. What was your secret? Were you right place, right time? Are you talking about 1975? Are you a genius? Was it right place, right time? Like, what was the secret sauce that made the company grow so quickly so early on? I would say, well, it was really slow going in the beginning, very slow. But I would say it was just a out of necessity, a really uh, simple focus on the riders. I was a rider and I knew people that were riders and just focused on that. And just like working out, you know, just focusing on that and not doing anything else. And then each thing had to work. And if it didn't work, you adjust really quickly. So, and then as the company started to develop is really getting, it was all about the people that joined the company that helped us grow. It's pretty extraordinary that as the founder, you're still deep, deep in the actual mechanics of the company. That's pretty incredible. Oftentimes, these companies you know, get very sophisticated, and then the founder doesn't have the skill set or the technical ability. What has kept you 
all of these years, besides your innate curiosity and the fact that you still obsessively ride bikes, which uh, yes. we've ridden together before, but what keeps you sort of so interested in where we're going, what we're doing? Because every year, Specialized comes out with innovation after innovation. Like you've been innovating from day one, from bike helmets to bottles. I mean, things that people don't even appreciate. Here we are all these years later, I mean, 48 years later, and you're still kind of driving the show. That's really remarkable. Part of the show. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the skill to do all those things, uh, no, I don't. And that's what's great about having other people that have those skills. But I would say for us, it's really that curiosity and just wanting to explore and test new things. I'd say that's what keeps us going. And working with top athletes puts a tremendous, it's a really great filter when you're working with the top athletes like you do, because there's no bluffing your way through it. It's got to really work. And so that has been a tremendous filter for us for all the years. And it's kind of the found, really it's the founding principle of the company, like focusing on the rider's need, right? And it could be that top triathlete or a, a road rider, a mountain rider, or just somebody riding around the city. But what does that rider need? So that using that filter is powerful. So I'm sure in these many years of running Specialized, you've learned a lot and changed a lot. If you could tell your young self as an entrepreneur what to do or not to do differently, what would that be? Yeah, I would say the really important thing to do is focus. Just like as an athlete, focusing on the rider and the person you're serving, kind of like obsessing about that and kind of getting rid of all the other noise, I would say is really important. So that's a really key one, is that obsession, right? And just like being so determined and driven by that, I say that's really the main thing is doing that because it's hard, it's hard. And then I would say the other thing is who you work with is so important. Are people that you work with are really giving you energy and critiquing you guiding you in the right way is so, I would say that's everything. Yeah. And the other one I would say is this, never give up. You know, what's interesting <laughs> you, and you hear people in the Olympics and other athletes talking about, I love hearing their story and they go, you know, I was just working on this, but I was so driven and to do it because they didn't think they were going to win. They didn't think they were going to win, but they were just so driven. And I would say that is the thing that just don't give up, right? And you think, oh, the people that win, they are just so confident and no self-doubt. No, quite the opposite, right? They're just the Olympics like, have shown us that, yeah. right? The <laughs> amount of anxiety and doubt people have. Just paranoid and obsessed and determined, but never giving up. Because most of the time when you're about ready to give up is about the time you can break through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, it seems like COVID has um, created this sort of like gigantic rebirth in interest in cycling. Just on a personal level, you know, we've got these trails behind our house, easy access mountain bike trails. And pre-COVID, we would literally never see like young kids, like elementary, no. middle, high school kids up there, or it would be rare, I should say. And then COVID hits and all of a sudden we start seeing a lot of different people on bikes and kids riding mountain bikes. And then I'd like to add too, it seems like there's also sort of been a rebirth and interest in watching the Tour de France. And now that mountain biking is viewable by anyone on Red Bull TV, right? There seems to just be this explosion in all forms of biking. 
Do you think that's going to stay? Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's great. And for somebody who loves cycling, it's powerful to see people out there and to see families out there, little kids out there. And you can tell that people are just loving it. And I think with the, you know, a lot of times when, when all this kind of stress comes upon people, we all tend to return to more core values, right? The family, healthy eating, clear relationships, all those kind of things. And for sure, the cycling is right there, is a pure way for people to express themselves, and particularly the mountain bike, to go out in nature. And it's just kind of emotionally so healing. I see, we see that it's going to continue on because people have rediscovered this in a way that really lights them up. You know, related to that, Cycling does change people's lives. And I can talk later about what we do with Outright and the experiences we've had. But yeah, we can see that people become lifetime cyclists. One of the things that I want to highlight is there's been a pivot, I think, or finally an acceptance of the electric mountain bike or the electric bike. I think you feel like, I feel like you jumped on sort of the possibility of an electrified bike very early and your technology is good and you have the lightest mountain bikes that are electrified. Juliet and I each have a Levo SL and we even know that someone like our Tour de France guy up in uh, Tahoe, Levi, Levi Leipheimer, rides his all the time, you know? And so yeah. even who we have the best bikers in the world jumping on recovery rides, putting their friends on it. We've been putting our daughter on it. Our 12-year-old has been able to ride with us. You pointed out that bikes change lives. Do you feel like this, the electric bike has given people an access or permission to sort of enjoy this sport in a different way and sort of opened up the social equity and justice around it? Absolutely. It absolutely has. And I, I would say that just like in the 80s, the mountain bike came out and it really expanded the whole activity of cycling. And now the electric bike is even more. Electric bike is even more because you know, people are still getting, as you know, you get a great workout. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the workout is actually the same, but you're actually going faster, right? And you can... <laughs> I don't you realize that. You can cover more distance. Right. You can almost go as fast up the hill as you do down the hill. And yeah, so the workout is the same. And yeah, we see that off-road and we see it in the city. The electric bike replacing the car is kind of the most popular EV of the future is not the car, but the bike. I had heard a story that in Durango, Ned Overend, legend for a rider with you guys forever, heard a story that in, he's in Durango that a lot of the kids don't take their cars, even though they can. They ride electric mountain bikes because they're faster and easier to park, easier to navigate, don't cost anything. That It's really shifted the culture, and it's based on the fact that there are actually great trails, roads, bike paths in Durango that make it accessible. Do you think we're starting to see or will the electric bike sort of transform cityscapes, transform landscapes? Because Juliet and I, I grew up in Germany, and Juliet and I go there all the time. Bike paths are ubiquitous. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we see it, and you're talking about Europe. Europe is already there tremendously, right, with the people using the bikes to get around and there's bike paths and everything. And, and we're seeing that now in the USA. So it's just going to, the rate of that is accelerating at a huge rate. And so it's so powerful because otherwise, you know, you look in where you live, like I live in Santa Cruz, it's like gridlock, right, with the cars, but you're on the bike and you can go around and 
and you feel so much better when you get there. And yeah, it's powerful. So I have to tell you a quick story, Mike. When I was in college at Berkeley in 1991, I got my first ever rock hopper, which I never actually rode on trail. I just rode it around town, but it was like my prized possession. And for some reason in the early 90s, maybe you'll remember there was like a market for bike seats. And so you would have to take your bike seat off your bike and into class. And then I just, in my sophomore year, someone stole my bike seat. And so I rode my rock hopper for a whole year of school with just no bike seat because I was broke and I couldn't afford to buy a new bike seat. So I just, I thought you'd appreciate that story. You could have stolen someone else's. I mean, I I just, it's just, isn't that funny that there was, I feel like it's not a thing anymore to steal bike seats, but it was in the early nineties. It was like, there obviously was a black market for specialized bike seats. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I remember that. You just take the quick release and you take the seat post. And, yeah. Yeah, you have That's to carry great. it. I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, and if you had that rock hopper still, it would still be working today. Yeah. That's one of the things that we pride ourselves is we make something that will stand up over time. I wish I still had it, actually. I was yeah. just at my uncle's house in Washington, and his original rock hopper is there, and it's how he moves around his little neighborhood. And he's just like, he's. I mean, it is... It looks great. It, it really is. The geometry of that is actually pretty progressive. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting as a side note, you know, the bicycle is one of the few things in the world that you can buy that you can continue to get repaired and things like that. Most other kind of like appliance things, when it doesn't work anymore or you need to get it fixed, it's cheaper to buy a new one, right? Whereas the bicycle is so sustainable in that way. Juliet and I started a walking school bus in our neighborhood. And because what we saw was that a lot of kids were lived within a mile of the school, mile and a half of the school. And parents were sort of remiss to just send their kids out. But we said, hey, well, there'll be an adult here waiting at this corner and we can walk all these kids to school at once. Wow. You know, so much of our behavior as adults is a pattern or something that we learn as children. We are now seeing, as Juliet pointed out, lots of kids on their bikes. We called them like, it was like the seventh grade bike gang around our neighborhood <laughs> last year, right? These kids were just, obviously they were sheltering together and they were just like a really crazy bike gang. Shirts off. These seventh grade boys were just ruled the town. Yeah, building little ramps in the, it, in it was, the back. It was so great, you know, getting yeah. trouble with the rangers with their shovels, you know, building yeah. little ramps, as Juliet said. You have a commitment through Outride to sort of change and empower this and transform these young kids. Can you talk about Outride? Because it's one of the things that I think is really remarkable about Specialized is that, and I'd like to talk about some of these other things, but you see a problem and you guys actually go out and solve it. Like, let me give you an example before you start in Outride. You created Angie, which is a head accelerometer that you put on your helmet that if you have a crash, you have X amount of time to get to your phone, turn off the alert, otherwise it, it calls. Because we've seen the number of concussions and middle-aged men riding their bikes. It was just one more thing that I think you guys did, and it integrates with all of the other tech. For me, it's one of the reasons that I was really excited about working with you is that you guys see a problem in cycling and around cycling, and then you go out and solve it. So would you talk about Outride as a sort of expression of that sort of curiosity, solution-driven thinking? Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm super passionate about that. I could talk forever about it. But, you know, but really Outride started um, because I realized I have ADHD. In high school, I didn't know that, but I was a high school dropout and I couldn't focus very well. And people just said, well, you're just stupid, right? <laughs> and, and that was probably true. But then later... I saw that writing really was a calming thing for me and for other people. And then 
And so then we contacted some uh, neuroscientists to do some research. And some of the research, well, we could tell anecdotally it was working, but then we had the neuroscience do this work. And you could see that you could kind of like a brain scan before and after writing. And you can tell that the writing lights up your brain. So it really calms you. So that was a big thing. And then about seven years ago, we worked with Stanford on this. And of course, Stanford, with all their resources, really proved it. We even made a helmet with the sensors in there so you could tell. So long story short, that you know this whole thing, I was so passionate about it. I thought, this is so obvious, right? So all exercise is good for the brain, but there's something more about cycling because of the pedaling and the balance, the sensory, that really lights up the brain. And so this research has been continuing, and we have this program that goes through the schools, and there's about 50,000 kids that go through the program every year. So in the beginning, it became writing for focus, for outriding ADHD, but then we realized, hey, for people is like, whether it's obesity, diabetes, anxiety, addiction, so all these things were really powerful. And um, we're really excited about it. And just seeing that how it could change. I mean, I've had kids that have addiction before and I go, look, okay, get them out riding. And then every day, as, as people know, exertion is the opposite of anxiety and depression, right? So just seeing that. And it's, you know, not only through the schools, but just bringing that awareness to people. And sometimes we go, well, you know, in this country, the number one prescribed drug in this country is Ritalin. And Ritalin, who's it given to? The youth. Well, how do we turn all of their energy into something that they can funnel? Sports do that, but riding even more so. So tell us a little more about, you know, you said you had 50,000 kids in school. What are they actually doing, learning? Tell us a little bit more about sort of the nuts and bolts of that program. Yeah. So the nuts and bolts of it is really, it goes through the physical education program at the school. And it's a, there's a certain protocol that we go through there. And, you know, the kids learn how to ride safely and that. But we've been monitoring their progress. It's not like just giving the school the bikes and I'll go do it. But it's like a certain protocol that they go through and also have, you know, wristbands to measure their heart rate and things like that. But we've shown that the before and after, um, you know, like, testing or or ability to focus after writing how strong that is so it's a very kind of discipline thing i mean it's fun for the kids but there's a certain protocol that we have followed with it so we can get more and more information so we have the the actual kids writing out there and the kids saying how they feel the parents and teachers saying how they feel but we also have the through stanford and that the lighten up their brain it's so powerful. You know, I know you also, in the last year, committed a big chunk of your own money to sort of expand the program to serve or to meet underserved, underrepresented communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, because the bike is not always available to everybody at different economic levels. So we've expanded to other schools to include a lot more diversity. And, um, and it's just amazing, the testimonials and the stories you hear from the kids. And it's, um, and you know, really, if you look at cycling, particularly at the elite level, like on the Tour de France, it's a pretty white sport, but now it's growing up as it needs to be. And also, we want outright 
to do the same thing. So we've expanded to quite a few schools. I can really relate to the focus thing. I am a latecomer to mountain biking. I just started about three years ago. But one of the things I think it is doing for me, and again, it's anecdotal, is that it's really great for my brain because there's just so much input. You know, it's like that you just, you have to have constant focus and thinking and making quick decisions on a mountain bike in a way that when I first started, actually, I would finish rides and I actually would, from a fitness standpoint, feel fine, but I could tell that my nervous system was exhausted because yeah. it was just so much input and balance and deep learning to be able to just like make it down some easy mountain bike trail. So I really relate a lot to that. I think it's really powerful. I see that. Yeah, it really is. In fact, when you're going down those trails, in some ways, you can't be thinking about anything else. You have to think <laughs> no. just, to, in fact, when you do, when you Flustic. daydream off, you're going to fall down. That's right. So that is, is such a calming way for you. And how do we find ways, in, in some ways, you know, riding the bike and particularly the mountain bike is a different level of consciousness, right? Where you, you feel so good and, and so renewed. One of the missions that Juliet and I have is to remind the general strength and conditioning and fitness community actually to go out and spend their credits. Right? You're training in the gym, which is great, but go out and actually get a sport done. We see a lot of the phenomenon where people are doing and integrating a ton of vision drills and balance drills yeah. into their training in the gym. And certainly if that's the only place you can go have a physical practice, that's great. But we point out all the time that there's so many things that you don't have to do in the gym if you did something like rode a bike. Your vision is close, your vision is far, you have to anticipate. We put in the development of children having a sliding or riding sport as part of their development because you have to process, plan ahead, and it actually makes for better athletes, more integrated people. You know this, but one of the things that we love about mountain biking particularly is that we have a lot of strength and conditioning athletes, people who like do CrossFit, for example, but they can transfer over to the bike relatively quickly. Like, for example, I don't think people know that Rich Froning and his Mayhem team are specialized ambassadors. And that what they've realized is that they have fallen in love with mountain biking. They can take this really big engine and quickly apply it to a new sport, and they're outdoors, and they're not lifting yeah. weights, and they're starting to do 24-hour races, and and they're incorporating the bike more and more. So really kudos for you know continuing to create an outlet for athletes to go get outside and just remind people that's how simple it is to jump on a bike and actually spend some of that fitness. Yeah, absolutely. And and in a new way, and, and really the thing of, I mean, the gym is great, but lighting up your brain out there riding your bike. And Julie, as you mentioned, especially on trails in the wilderness, and, you know, there's nothing better than nature. There's nothing more healing than nature. And I think especially for kids, it's so important. And, you know, one of the research that has confirmed, yeah, for kids lighting up the brain, but also for aging adults, riding their bike and the circulatory has really helped people to keep fresh mentally to avoid dementia and Alzheimer's. That's for sure. That makes really good sense. It does. So shifting a little bit, Mike, back to sort of a general COVID subject, but these two words I don't think I ever said before COVID, and now I seem to say them all the time, including mm. at the dinner table, and those two words are supply chain. So, yeah. you know, we don't even really run a business. Our business isn't really impacted by the supply chain, but I think somehow 
It is a little, all, it is a little, a little bit. bit, but we're all, we've all been talking about the supply chain and we know given the giant run on bikes. So anyway, I would just love to hear you talk to us a little bit about how Specialized has been impacted by supply chain problems. And if you're adapting the way you're manufacturing bikes going forward as a result of that, or, you know, just tell us a little bit about that because, you know, we all talk about supply chain. <laughs> yeah, we do. And I think this year has affected every company that makes physical things. And for sure, for us as Specialized, it has affected us a lot. And in fact, the fact that there's more demand on our bicycles, you know, our bikes are handmade. It's not like you just crank up the machine to say double the production. Okay, we can increase by 10 or 15%. It's not like we can double it. Right. So then that puts even more stress on everything. Yeah, everything you can see with everything has created a big stress, whether it's cars or other things because the movement of goods and especially internationally and bicycles, especially our bikes, we've really gotten constrained with that because we can't increase the production and and that's increased as much as we can, but we can't, we're not going to go down market or sacrifice quality. So it's a slow process. I will see personally, there's been a few times where I'm like, I need a new stump jumper, Yeah, but there are no new stump jumpers to be had. It's really, it's really amazing. I know. I heard a stat that all of the bike manufacturers that carry specialized, it would take specialized a year or two of just making the bikes to replace the bikes on the floor of all yes. of those buildings, which I think is just to come back to having stock in there. It's really incredible. Yeah, it is. In fact, a sore subject at specialized is employees want bikes. And That's then one of the reasons you work it. there. Yeah, and we can't get them. <laughs> <laughs> People first, the people first. How is, you know, because I know obviously it's, you know, small retailers that are mostly selling your bikes and, you know, do they have bikes? How has it impacted them? Are they all panicking? Sort of what's going on in like the bike retail market? Yeah, it's tough. And people are all day long. It's like, well, when do I get our bikes? We're making about the same quantity we did last year, not much more at all. And so we just allocate those out and Virtually every, it seemed like every bike that we're sending out is pre-sold. Three words, bike hoarding. I'm on it. I'm, bike hoarding? I, I believe. Yeah. Mike, let me yeah. ask you, what do you, if, without kind of giving away the top secrets of Specialized, it is cool to be around the shop and see what you guys have cooking. What are you excited about? What are you all working on? What do you think the frontier is? Because let me give you an example. I don't think Specialized is just a bike company anymore. With what you've done with electrifying vehicles, you really are trans- have the potential to transform society and how people move goods and move themselves around. That's not just a bike company anymore. So what is it that kind of has you fired up or what are you working on? Well, I would say we're always fired up about making the bicycle better and learning how to make the bike ride better, how to make it more comfortable. That's really key. Even like for the Tour de France, when the riders are more comfortable on there, they have less fatigue. They're able to go faster and longer. So that's on one side, that's been going on forever. But I would say on the electric side is really, as you mentioned, is so exciting, right? And it is kind of, it's like we say with our turbo, it's like you only faster. So it's integrated in there. You're riding the bike and you just feel sometimes like you're riding, you go, wow, I feel really strong today. <laughs> and you are, but it's that integration of the, of the human power and the electric power together. So I would say that's an area we're working on just to make that better and better all the time. 
So, Mike, we Kelly and I feel like we've had an extravaganza of watching biking on television between the Mountain Bike World Cup and the Tour de France and now the Olympics. I assume you've been watching a lot of that. Did you go to the Tour de France this year? I didn't because of the travel, but I watched it all. Yeah. So what are you seeing? What are your takeaways? What excited you about any or all of those events? <sighs> I would say it's the, on the riding, is the human and bicycle integration. And I always love watching the riders that are really good and, and it's looked like them and the bike are one, or in some ways, like they're just like when you watch kids that are really good, it's like they're like an animal on the bike, right? And they just flow, they just flow with it. And uh, I love seeing that with the riders. It's just so amazing. And, and the determination, I think the determination is just, you can see it on the athletes all the athletes. I love that. You know, I feel like right now there are storied cyclists going back decades. I mean, really incredible, you know, Eddie Merckx. But I feel like right now we have the greatest depth of talent we've ever had across biking. I'm talking about women's yeah. road biking, women's cross country is insane, cross country mountain yeah. biking. If you look at the talent in the men's like road, like yeah. Vanderpool jumping back and forth yeah. and switching divisions, it's really... Do you think that we're seeing the fruits of a generation of kids who've grown up and seen what's possible? Because I feel like we've never had, it's an embarrassment of riches. Sagan could be a world champion who's a specialized rider, could be a world champion in probably five different sports, and he's chosen cycling. Well, yeah, and there's always the new riders coming, right? There's always the, the new athlete that is hungrier than the other ones is going to come through and show it. And then you also have like the key athletes like Cavendish, for two years, people go, oh, you know, he's done. He's not very good. And then all of a sudden, you know, he called us and he goes, hey, I want to be back on the team. I rode the bike and my power and everything is really good. And so he comes back and does it. So that's also a wonderful story, right? It, it's a great story when people say, oh, that athlete is done. And then they come back and just throw down and do it. I love that, right? We were just jumping up and down cheering when Cavendish just, I mean, it was really a, for the, for the old people out there, <laughs> I think Cavendish is what, like 35? <laughs> right? yeah. So 34 yeah, maybe. He's like the oldest guy the oldest in the whole guy. tour. So uh, yeah. you know, we were just blown away. But to your point, you know, it, it really takes a long time to get good. And it's fun to see how much faster people are and how much more competent they are and how the bikes have evolved. My first, you know, stump jumper blew my mind. And I think I even yeah. emailed you and was just like, oh, my wrist feels better. Yeah. This, I can go faster downhill. I mean, this, we have a, we went on a big uh, ride with, you know, Rodney in the desert with a bunch of friends. And we just had developed this phrase, thank you, bike. You know, the bike just would save our butts over and over again. Just like, you know, thank you, bike. You know, that was for the bike. I feel like it's pretty remarkable. Every year, I'm like, what can they do? How do these bikes get better? And the geometry gets better. The components get better. I'm on an S-Works Epic and a mountain bike. And I am shocked at how it actually made me faster go uphill. I mean, people are like, it's not about the bike. I'm like, eh, it sort of it is. It kind of is about the bike now. <laughs> it kind of is actually about bike the bike. Makes, and I just want to give a shout out that if you're listening to this and you're like, hey, I used to mountain bike. Mountain biking a decade ago, yeah. even 15 years ago, the bikes were an order of magnitude less comfortable, less yeah. easy to use. They are and less so, safe. and yeah. less safe. It really yeah. is remarkable about how comfortable it is possible to be on a bike and how much more capable you are. And we have friends, we have a little bike club in our neighborhood and um, the Terra Linda Bike Club, about 10 to 12 of us ride every Saturday. 
And what we saw was that guys were showing up in their old bikes, and they're like, it's fine. And I was like, it's not fine. Yeah. And as soon as they jumped on a new yeah. bike, they were like, holy crap, this is actually yeah. fun. Yeah. Isn't that right? And, you know, it's just like the athletes that win in the Olympics, right? And you go in like a bike. It's like hundreds of things, hundreds of things or thousands of things that have been improved that you go, oh, that's not much. That's not much. But it's like all those things that are improved raise the level to a whole nother level, right? You know, it's all those little things that add up and it's powerful. It's really powerful. So it's Mike, obsessing. Um, <laughs> and there's the ADHD kicking his head again. Yeah, you, can't, yeah. you can't, you know, just you harnessed it. I think that's your superpower. I think, you know, sometimes people forget that like maybe you're the thing that gives you the most grief is also your superpower. Isn't that true? And, and you know, that's one of the things that is a powerful thing I find with kids is um, how do you help kids because sometimes they think, oh, they're weird or this and that. And it's like how to take that obsession into something that is really powerful, right? And I think, you know, like people with Asperger or ADHD, how do you turn that into a superpower? And you don't medicate it, but you lean into it. And in some ways, I work with people that have addiction. I have a foundation for that. And it's interesting that a lot of the people with addiction can be sometimes the most sensitive person in the family that takes all the pain, right? And then the family thinks, well, it's that person that's the problem. Well, they just happen to be the one who took it all. It's not always that way, but more often than not. And so then that can also be a superpower for them, their sensitivity and, and how do you help people turn that into an energy. And I would say most of the athletes, particularly bike riders who I know, because it's a long you know, it was like long events, five or six hour riding. A lot of them have a lot of angst in them, a lot of anger and a lot of mm, determination, right? <laughs> but then they turn that into something. And, and, I, I, and I, use I, it as a superpower. And I will say yeah. that every professional cyclist I've ever met are kind people. And I th it's really a strange phenomenon. I have not run into many jerk cyclists, just haven't, men and women. And I suspect it's just because the sport is can be at the top level so hard. You know, we're in a new conversation around pain in this country. And, you know, there's been a lot of sort of pain explained to people. Yeah. And one of the things about biking is it's really self-imposed suffering potentially yeah. can be, right? <laughs> and I always tell people, I'm like, hey, look, I know we're talking about pain here, but if you dropped into the body or the brain of Haley Batten, in a World Cup, she's a specialized rider. If you from Santa Cruz, if you dropped into her brain during a World Cup race, you would perish by the amount of pain that she's undergoing. You would just be like, "This, I can't live in this. I'm going to kill myself. This is too hard." Right. And that's just a Tuesday for her. Right. And so uh, it, there's something about that that really does make kinder people. It's it's interesting. Well, especially they seem kind after they've been riding. But if they haven't <laughs> been riding for a week or something, they're probably pretty miserable to be around. <laughs> <laughs> this is all, this is also true. I know that. It's, it's very true. Yeah. So true. Well, Mike, it's so fun to talk to you and tell us what you're excited about working on the next couple of years. What are you looking forward to? Oh boy. I would say I look forward to so the two things that I love the most of running the company is like first seeing people grow. Seeing people is like an athlete, seeing people grow and do things they didn't think they could do, right? I love that. So I find that really satisfying and being able to pick those, help those people grow and they didn't think they could and, 
maybe people are shy or they don't think they can, but then they do things and it's like that. I love that. And I also love the creation process. I like that a lot. In fact, in some ways, probably like running the company, actually running it is my least favorite thing to do. <laughs> I understand. Well, I don't actually don't understand that because Juliet runs her company, so it's totally yeah. Fine. But it's a, yeah, it's like what I just talking about. I just get to make bikes all the time. Yeah. Well, and you know the other thing I, I really enjoy is I've learned so much over the years and still learning, but all the different cultures and how how people in different parts of the world and and even though sometimes as Americans people we can be confused if people speak English that we think we're really aligned up with them and you grew up in Germany, there's a big difference between Germans and California people, right? And I love that difference. You know, Germans are very direct, and they have a feeling that if you're not direct, you're not being respectful. Whereas sometimes in California, if people are direct, it's like, oh, you know, I have such thin skin, right? So, but, but I love all these, all the different cultures. I find it just incredible. And, you have and, specialized retailers in how many places in the world? Oh, she's probably, I think we're in like 108 countries all together. I had a chance of speaking to uh, one of your big um, sort of oh, sales yeah. events where the international yeah. buyers and I was blown away by the diversity. It was one of the last events that happened before the big COVID shutdown. Yeah. And just the number of different voices and faces and nationalities in that single room. And I was like, you know what this is all about? It's about the bike. It's crazy. It really is it common is. ground. Yeah, and so, and through the global pandemic, we've had a lot of global calls, more than we did before, and a lot of sharing. So a lot of growing from that. So I love that part of it. And I'm excited about continuing that further and not just making bikes that people want, but making bikes that people never dreamed of. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time to talk to us. If people want to learn more about you or specialized or outride or outride, where can they find information about you and all those things? Yeah, you can just go to our website, specialized.com. Awesome. We will put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Mike. Easy. Mike, Thank it's you. great to see you. I can't wait to hug that person again. Yeah, it's great to see you. I didn't know you grew up in Germany. I grew up on a Peugeot sitting bowl. It was my first mountain bike. And yeah. I'll just finish by saying it gave me freedom. It gave me a passport to yeah. ride around the neighborhood. We would ride 50 miles on a weekend, 100 you know, we'd ride to the border, we'd ride the mountains, we would bike pack on this. And so, uh, you know, you caught me early. You got, I got hooked and I'm forever grateful. And the, the bike is still continue to change our lives. That's great. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. So always good to see you. I look forward to seeing you in person. Likewise, my friend. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, and thank you for all the people that you help. I mean, I have so many. You know, the story of my son is incredible. I tell people that because he was so, I know I told you before, but I, I know I just keep saying it, but he was beside himself that he couldn't ride. We went to Stanford and looked at the top surgeon. We went to the doctor of a baseball team and the Barry Bonds recommended and another football team and chiropractor and they were all suggesting all this stuff we did that for a week and rodney said hey contact kelly and he went up there and we did that exercise that stretching that you had that took like five minutes (laughs) and he came home and we have a trainer in the garage and he started to ride on the trainer we came right from your place to the home on the trainer and he was riding and he goes it doesn't hurt it doesn't hurt 
I can ride, I can ride. And he was sobbing. He goes, get me a water bottle, get me a water bottle. (laughs) But that story was like, well, you know, for us to be able to do our sport, and my son is like me, that he's better than me, but it's like he riding and exercise is so important because he's such a high-level athlete. But thank you for that. You're welcome. It's so powerful. I mean, that's got to be the the psychic income of what you do to be able to make a difference like that. Well, I'll tell you, that's fun. Sometimes Juliet says, I'm probably not, I'm just an average physical therapist, but I'm really good at giving people permission to own their own process. And the really cool part about our job, (laughs) you're about to... No, 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 I I agree with everything you said. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, the cool part of our job, though, is we get to keep doing amazing work with different people. And my work with Specialized, yeah. I'm so proud of. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been, um, and we've only just begun. Oh, I know. We've only just begun. So good. Thanks again, Mike. <laughs> Thanks, thank Mike. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it.